Welcome to Mint, the podcast exploring the Web3 creator economy. I'm your host, Adam Levy, and every Tuesday and Thursday, I'll be showing you what's happening at the corner where crypto meets creators by interviewing Web3's top creative entrepreneurs, collectors, and founders. This episode is brought to you by the composable and decentralized social graph Lens Protocol, who's ready for you to build on so that you can focus on creating a great experience, not scaling your users. Guys, I've talked about this on the podcast before. We as creators need to break through a new paradigm of social networking apps that we control rather than them controlling us. Lens Protocol isn't a social media app. It's designed to let Web3 social apps bloom. Own your content, own your social graph, own your data. Lens Protocol is the last social media handle you'll ever have to create. This episode welcomes Robin Schmidt, aka Supermassive, who's the founder of Based AF. Discover his unique approach to simplifying complex subjects into engaging videos, his passion for crypto, and the evolution of his creative voice. Robin shares his insights on his content creation system and the differences in his creative freedom from working at Harmony and The Defiant. He also dives into the third pillar of the creator economy and the concept of full-time fans. Get ready to learn what makes great content truly worth collecting. I hope you guys enjoy our conversation. <laughs> Caught you off guard right there. <laughs> Had to send I'm always ready. Message. How dare you? How dare you? <laughs> we go live in three seconds. I'm there, man. I'm ready. We're live. We're live, We're live. and in action. Welcome. Su- su- super massive. That's, that's what it says that's on your me. name tag. It is what it says. I, I had a stutter while I was typing it. So, you know, that's what happened. I think it's fitting. It's it's the name that fits your entire energy. Ever since I've met you, I think like what, like two years ago or something like that, you've had this energy to you and you just brought it on the introduction. And I'm super happy to have you here. A part of season seven, su- su- super massive. Welcome. Um, what's Welcome going to on? Me. Welcome to me. Yes, I'm very happy to be here. Um, and thank you for the quotes on my energy. It's like, uh, it's a weird thing. Like, I don't really know where it comes from because most of the time I'm extremely quiet. And I have my headphones on and nobody hears from me. And then like when the camera's on me, it's like, boom. Bullshit. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Uh, it's a little bit of that self-preservation, I think, more than anything else. If I was okay. on the whole time, I wouldn't survive. I would need so much sugar. Yes. Anyone could be angry with me. So. I feel like you're just, you just have a sugar IV in you 24-7. At least well, that's, that's what it feels like publicly. Yeah. My diabetes is coming on nice. Woo. Oh, yeah. Let's go. <laughs> Rob, do, you, do you remember how we met originally? I sort of do. Uh, there was an event uh, in LA, some kind of thing you were working virtual, with. Virtual, yes. With, who are you working for? You were working for... Draper, Draper? Home. Yeah, Draper. Yes. yes. And you reached out to me and said, listen, we want to do a review of the year. Do you fancy doing something? And I said, yes. And then I realized that I couldn't deliver it. And then I came up with something else very quickly, um, which we delivered for you, which was just like this fun review of the year. I was working at The Defiant. And that was when I came up with the... Andre Cronier perfume ad, which is like the probably the fav- <laughs> my most favorite thing I've ever made in Web three, and it's weird because it's divisive, but at the same time, like as a pure piece of kind of satire, Andre Cronier as a perfume, it's like probably yeah, it's the thing I'm most proud of in Web three, which is bizarre really, but like yeah, so that's there, yeah, that's how we met. Ever since I saw that video, I've I've been in love. I got to tell you. Oh, damn. Uh, I, f- I feel like I've been watching your was. content. I know. And this is why I brought you here to confess my love to you and to see if you will take me in this Web3 metaverse journey. I take you. Yours. I take you wholeheartedly. My ring is your ring. What is, what's the oh, expression? Amazing. 
I'll take it. Just leave that as an expression. Leave it. Okay. As, no, but, yes. but seriously, real, real talk. Ever since I saw that video and you created it custom for that event and ended up going on YouTube and being this really, really funny ass meme, um, I've been a big fan of your stuff. Um, and if there's one person that understands content creation, it's you. From all the work that you've done at the Defiant to what you're doing now with base media, for those who don't know you, I want to give a quick intro. Can you introduce yourself? If no one's ever met you, how do you actually introduce yourself? So my name is Robin Schmidt. I go by the name Supermassive, which gives you an idea okay. of the superhero persona that I put on when I'm in front of the camera. I guess in a sense, what I am is an entertainer. I make fun content and I make it about subjects which inherently are not fun. Like DeFi, for instance, DeFi is not fun. And I guess my challenge to myself is to take concepts like technology, concepts which are inherently non-visual and turn them into things that can be consumed by people visually and given a sheen of pop culture that makes them memorable makes them entertaining and makes people want to come back and see more because these are concepts that I'm trying to absorb and understand myself. And so that's the, the lens through which I view them. And I've spent 25 years becoming the best kind of filmmaker I could. And it was only once I stepped into web three that I was able to cast off the shackles of what other brands wanted me to do for commercials or what funding agencies want you to do in order to get funding and just kind of be the filmmaker I wanted to be. And so when I put myself in front of the camera and started presenting the videos instead of just directing them, I guess that's when it finally became the truest, most authentic version of the filmmaker that I am. And that's, mm. you know, where I am today. So, Looking back 25 years, are there any specific experiences that you can attribute to your creative simplicity of taking complex subjects and breaking them down into really fun, endearing videos? Anything you can look back on and kind of reflect on? Well, probably when you're learning to be a videographer or a filmmaker, you find ways to fund yourself and you find ways to, to keep doing the job because otherwise you have to do another job and it's very difficult to make films. That's not true. It's actually very easy to make films there. It used to be very difficult to make films. When I started, getting your hands on the cameras, getting your hands on the equipment. So what you did was take crappy jobs. And those crappy jobs, in my instance, were karaoke videos. So if you went mm. to a karaoke bar, there would be a video sitting behind the lyrics of some cheesy dude and some cheesy girl in black and white and in slow-mo. Well, chances are I made that video and that's how I learned. But we used to churn out about like, five or six of these a day and we challenge ourselves to shoot them for 10 pounds that was the budget we give ourselves wow because uh, we would we would receive 300 pounds for making them and then we just like knock out five or six a day and you know try and shoot them as quickly and as cheaply as we could but man you learned so much in that process and that was basically film school where that led to was then well obviously we can make instructional videos so we made instructional videos for the likes of gyms and things like that because we were doing a lot of um extreme sports stuff to begin with skiing snowboarding and base jumping that's kind of how i got started just filming nutters throwing themselves off cliffs and other cable cars and that led to tv work doing explainers basically breaking down tricks and how to do them for viewers of the extreme sports channel and we did a buttload of that like a like a really a lot of different kinds of types of explainers and i guess that's kind of where it came from just you know taking tricks and tips and turning them into content. But that was like before even YouTube. Um, so I, I guess also the other half of it is I'm naturally curious. I, I went to the university of Oxford 
believe it or not. My father oh, it was a professor at the University of Oxford. So I'm flexing my non-Ivy League, Ivy League credentials <laughs> here as a proud Brit. Um, so I guess it's, academically I'm fairly woke and enjoy learning new things. And crypto was always a challenge. It's like, how do you, how do you play this game? Because it always feels right. like a game, right? And then, you, you know, you get into shitcoin trading, you get into the darker arts of growing your quote unquote network, which is like, who's got the tip on this next shitcoin that's going to go up and all that stuff. And then gradually growing into actually a proper network of people who are building stuff, who are doing things. And then parlaying that into, in my case, a DeFi network, uh, which became the basis of how I kind of got hired by the Defiant. So all of that, it's just, it's just a natural curiosity about playing games and trying to win those games and seeing how best to do that. And then there's the game of DeFi. That, that entails your transition into working with the Defiant. But how did you actually get into crypto? Like, what was that story that got you into, into the space? So it's kind of part, partly tragic, partly true, mostly true. Some of it's fictitious. Um, I am a storyteller <laughs> after all. No, it's, I had directed a feature film before I turned 40, which is like one of those milestones. Like if you're a filmmaker directing a feature film, it sets you like about above 99% of the rest of people who make films. Cause it's very, very difficult to make a feature film and very few people actually get to do it. It's sort of worth less these days than it used to be, but it really was when I, grew up it was like the gold standard if you've done that you've made it except the fact is you haven't made it you've made a film so what you go to the Cannes film festival you go to the market there and there's four thousand other people selling a product that is basically indistinguishable from yours in the market and then there's like this tiny veneer on top where the money lies the money there but most of the other product is garbage it's being sold to tv networks and you're part of that garbage you're in that garbage pile that's a horrifying realization that actually the thing that you thought was now your calling card, that you've made it, was actually no more than a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of print in a catalog that would be basically turned into pulp in two weeks. And that, that's a horrible place to be. So after that, I kind of went, well, what do I do now? And I realized that I would have to kind of get real and get back into the grind of making work that I didn't want to make. And I had two kids at the time. And so basically what happened was, I surrendered meekly to the God of commerce and said, I will now be a commercial director and I will make commercials and that's what it will be. And so I just ended up making shit. I hated. Mm. And it sounds so entitled because I had budget. I had all the tools I needed. I had nice cameras. I had lights. I had all these kind of things. And I had access to shoot things two or three times a month that was paying the bills. And by all accounts, should have been happy, made it. But every job, you're just like, well, where's me in all of this? Where's the honesty? Where's where's the idea that I can take to the set and say, wow, that was a cool idea. We did it. And like, it was so few and far between. It just grinds you down after a while. There's only so many times you can go into a, a meeting about a coffee product and debate whether the vase next to the coffee machine should be this shade of blue or that shade of blue. Because tell me, who gives a fuck? about the color of the vase, <laughs> nobody except the brand Nazis. So yeah, so that, that's just kind of where I ended up. And I, I, I realized that in order to make the move back into the creative stuff that I wanted to do, I was going to have to spend at least a year, probably two years, putting right. every single penny I owned into making a completely brand new set of work, just a completely brand new, just, you know, work that reflected what I actually wanted to be and wanted to do. 
but there was no guarantee that I would even be able to pull that off because it's really hard to get those kinds of projects off the ground. You have to produce them yourself. You have to kind of get favors from everybody. It's just expensive. And so I was just thinking like, how do I do this? What, what, what am I supposed to be doing with my life? And the question in my mind was always about money. It was like, the, the problem is money. I don't have enough money. I'm smart enough to be able to figure this out. What I've been doing is chasing this stupid, crazy thing and not using my brain properly. I can do this. No, I couldn't. Uh, and what happened was I went down to a job in Belgium with my boss. And while we were driving down, he told me about this thing that he bought, this cryptocurrency. And he told me, you know, I bought this thing and now it could pay off my mortgage. And I was like, well, what is that? What is a cryptocurrency? What is this thing? I kind of knew about Bitcoin already. I'd actually randomly bought some when I was researching uh, some ideas about Silk Road, funnily enough, back in the day. I ended up buying Bitcoin. No idea where that Bitcoin is. It's in a wallet somewhere, which I can't access. I don't even know how much I had, but I know I bought it off a site called Bittylicious in the UK. Um, <laughs> I don't believe you. <laughs> no, no, it's true. It's absolutely true. It's back in 2013. What, what year? Okay, wow. Yeah, okay. 2013. Um, yeah, madness. Absolute madness. I don't know where it is. And, um, but then I completely forgotten about it. He told me about this thing and I was like, I need to understand what this is. And then my brother-in-law just randomly said, and you know what? I might just give up my job as an architect and mine Bitcoin instead. Those two points triggered an idea. I went down the rabbit hole and I never came back out. And I was just, that was 2017. I was just literally just before the bull run really took off in 2017. I looked at this thing and just went, well, this is how you do it. This is how you solve money. I was taught a horrible lesson later in 2018 when it all went all came crashing down. But what I did learn during the course of that was that this was a space I could thrive in, that there were f people here who were doing some interesting things. And if I made friends with them, maybe that would lead to other things. The ICO craze was going on and there was so much to learn, so much to absorb. Um, it was really fascinating. And then off the back of that, just by random chance, a syndicate that I was a part of made an investment in Harmony at their seed round. So they got access to the seed round of Harmony. And I was like, all right, I'll, I'll, I'm in, I'm in, whatever this is, I'm in. And just kind of became obsessed with this project called Harmony. Not because I thought it was going to be the greatest project in the world. I was actually a little skeptical of it to begin with, but because it was really easy to see who they were. They were this team in Silicon Valley. It was kind of fascinating how they had these Saturday barbecues. It just seemed interesting. And so I just called them up and said, I was a seed investor. I think I could tell your story in a really interesting way. Would you be interested in that? Because what I've been thinking about was crypto is powered by memes. It's powered by storytelling. But the storytellers in the space were either scam artists or just kind of meme artists. And there wasn't anything in between that was more substantial, but wasn't scammy at that time. And so I thought maybe if, if I'm good at content, I might have a place in this space. So that was it. I rang up Harmony. We discussed it for about a year weren't able to really kick it on. They wanted to do a documentary about the project. Uh, I said, well, yeah, we can definitely do that, but we need some budget. And then I just took a chance, bought a ticket, flew over and went to meet them. Wow. And off the back of that, in the room, I pitched them a different idea and they bought it in the room. And about three months later, we realized that the best place for me to be probably was working for Harmony. So I joined them as their creative director and that was 2019. I remember so that's, that. So that's kind of when DeFi was just emerging and Harmony was a layer one sharding protocol. It was about high speed. It was about exciting, new, blazing fast applications. EOS was still big back then. Mm -hmm. And 
DeFi was starting to emerge, but and there was this growing narrative around DeFi. Funnily enough, there was another growing narrative around a kind of exciting Korean project that was really gaining traction that no one was really paying attention to, but everyone thought was going to be a big deal, especially our Korean team members. It was called Terra, believe it or not. And um, and so I, I, in my role with Harmony, I, I quickly pivoted to video because I was their creative director and I was helping write communications and chip in with ideas around marketing. But I realized that, that the best job I could do for them was video. So we just got the office here. We got a little camera and started producing videos for them. And then I just realized that we would have no footprint in DeFi and we would miss the entire DeFi movement unless we did something. There was no way we could get any protocols to build on Harmony at that point. It was too soon. Right. We were just about to kind of build a bridge. That was the first kind of instance of the Harmony arriving. Bridge. Yeah. And, um, and so I thought if we, make con- if we make the best content about DeFi and tell the story of DeFi, then we might have something. So in order to do that, I needed to partner up with one of the two DeFi newsletters at the time, one of which was Bankless and the other was The Defiant. So those are your two sources for DeFi. And I just decided I would get really good at understanding DeFi and good, really good at explaining DeFi. Mm. And I called them both up or I emailed them both. Um, Ryan Sean Adams messaged me back once. He laughs about this now on Twitter. Haha. Uh-huh. Uh, he ghosted me after that because I was working for Harmony. He didn't want to, he didn't want to have anything to do with it. Um, so I could have ended up working for Bankless, didn't. Uh, I ended up working with Camilla at the Defiant. And yeah, we just started telling the story of what was going on, like the curve launch with Wi-Fi, with all these projects that now just seem kind of weirdly established and not that exciting. But you forget, like when DeFi Summer happened, they were the most exciting games in town. Right. They were just, there was this incredible energy around fair launch. I mean, we were just coming out of the P- PTSD of like an extended, painful bear market. And suddenly there was this rush around food tokens, like sushi and like pickles and like all this stuff. It just, I, thinking about now, and- it's just bizarre yams, like all of this stuff, so much experimentation and ponzonomics around these yield farms and everything else. It was wild. And so we were telling those stories. And um, what I realized was there's a Bloomberg way to tell that story. And there's the shitcoin channel way to tell that story. And then there was a different way, which was how <laughs> did it feel? Like what? The Robin what, way. What, what, and like, yeah, the, the really random weird way. And so I, I just started doing stuff like I would be really seriously telling you a story and then I'd just get hit in the face with a banana. So like with the curve launch, because curve is curved and bananas are curved, I thought this story is bananas. Why don't I just tell the entire thing using bananas as a metaphor? And I had a banana as a telephone. I get hit in the face of the banana. Just, just riffing on that. And it became like a little signature thing. I just do these really weird videos. And like, we spent nothing on them, but the creativity was there for people to see. And it became a kind of running thing. And then when the sushi uh, chef Nomi rugged on sushi and ran off with like right. 10 million bucks, uh, he just wrote these painfully awkward messages on Twitter, how he's not a bad guy. And then we turned that into a country and Western song because Tiger King <laughs> had just come out at the time. And like, there was this song, I saw a tiger. Tiger was me. So I turned the story of sushi into a country and Western ballad and people just went nuts for it. Um, and I just kept doing stuff like that. And then we did the whole story of pickles. Pickles is an amazing one. We did the whole thing as a, in, in rap. So I just like, I learned how to rap and then we recorded like four different rap songs to tell the story of this stuff. Um, 
And then we did one where it was like this, the world's longest, most involved hack. Did it as, a, as an R&B slow jam. So I just improvised like Drake over the top of like a slow jam thing. It's like, why? Who does that? But like, that was the, that was the medium of expression for me. So it was just taking a thing that doesn't deserve to have any creativity whatsoever that isn't interesting and, and just uh. doing that. And I think that's just kind of what got me on, on people's radars and, and got me into a position where when it came to launching my own thing, I, I, I was in a position to ask for investment in a way that they weren't going to laugh right. at. So that's what we ended up doing. Which, which we'll get into in a sec. But during this entire story, you were telling me prior to DeFi, you had trouble sort of finding yourself. You were asking yourself, where's me in all this? And when you got into crypto and Web3, you found that me. You found your creative voice, your creative self in the content that you were creating. I'm curious, sort of like, what was that process like for you? Because I feel like a lot of people, they go through their mundane jobs trying to find them in their work and they can't really discover that. And you found this outlet with this level of freedom, right? Where you could explore that. What was that process like? Well, to be honest, my, my life has been a, su a succession of modest successes that present as failures. So I... I started this journey back in 2002 with no experience in filmmaking, but a lot of kind of creative energy. And, and I managed to parlay that into being good at editing. And so I was, I was able to kind of take my ideas and express them through editing. And it's always been, it's always been kind of in there, but it was never schooled. And so what, what I, what I'm really good at is pastiche. So it's taking something that's already out there and satirizing it and making a pastiche version of it. I'm really good at that. And it's sort of a superpower, but it actually gets in the way because what it doesn't force you to do is come up with your own idiosyncratic way of doing things. And so I think a lot of my work probably up to like 2012 was that it was just really capable pastiches of things that looked credible and was credible. Wasn't that original? And then in 2012, I met my kind of, partner in crime, Simon one, who was the other half of supermassive because supermassive actually two of us mm. and he unleashed the beast in me. And they suddenly I was able to kind of just really go after creative stuff. We launched on YouTube and went massively viral and never did anything with it. And it was one of the greatest regrets of my life that we just weren't able to take that viral success and run with it because I had two kids and I decided to prioritize my family and Simon went off and became an actor and did really well at that but we really nailed it. Like we really properly nailed it in 2012. Imagine that we, if we kept going, who knows, wow. we would have been, we would have been Mr. Beast before Mr. Beast. No, I have no idea. Who knows? <laughs> probably would have, we probably would have given up within a year, but that, that was the moment I realized that I knew what I, what I was and what I wanted to be. The hard part is then convincing people who have money to back that because what you end up doing is then shaving off the edges to sanitize it so that they will back you rather than sticking to your guns. And that's just because being a filmmaker is the fastest way to get poor. It really is. It's just, you just renders you broke because everything is just a struggle to make money. So it hasn't, wasn't necessarily a question of me finding me. It was finding the mechanism by which I could continue to be me and, and it not bankrupt me again, solving, solving the money problem. Um, because you know, I promised my wife, I wouldn't just go chasing windmills again and crazy ambitions right. and stuff. Cause I'd, I'd been trying to get into Hollywood and trying to get a feature film off the ground. And every time it just felt like this impossible journey. And I think what I hadn't realized was that there was a different way. And if I was open to that different way, then it would happen. And that is exactly what did happen. I was open to that different way, but where it came from was I literally was 
creatively dead, I think, uh, mm. around about 2019. It, it, all the creative energy in me had gone. How and come? So, because I'd just been, been making crap I hated and being forced to just churn out this crap I hated. And it, it sounds ridiculous, but I've been doing it for like two and a half years at that point, just making okay. mindless coffee commercials and mindless vacuum cleaner commercials. And like, it's fine. It's good when you've, when you're like a youngster and you're learning the craft and everything else. And it's good discipline. You know, you learn good craft with the agencies, and everything else, but like creatively it's horrific and it just grinds you down. And so I, I was completely dead. And the thing that I did was I just started making the most ridiculous gifts, the most ridiculous gifts I could possibly make for like for anyone i called them deluxe gifts and they were like 40 seconds long these gifts and they had like full storylines they had exquisite visual effects in them they, they were the gifts that no one else would make and just absurd things that i'd lifted from different films and put different heads on and stuff like they still exist on telegram so you can let me just see if i can find it now if you look on telegram there's a channel called deluxe gifts i think you yes. just created a bunch of gifts and stitched them together. and they're all in there yeah no i and i just made like a shit ton of gifts and I would do them on the train on the way into work, and they made me happy. That's uh, deluxe gifts. <laughs> and these are so from funny? like, yeah, th from 2019. Like, wow. Ridiculous. I mean, th th these, these gifts would be like 300 megs, like just entirely stupid. And like tons of visual effects Jeez. and motion graphics and stuff. I, yeah, I just did so much stupid stuff. Um, so yeah, you can still find that and, um, okay. Yeah. So that's what I did. Okay. So that okay. reignited the creativity of me and, and, uh, it's kind of, okay. it's, yeah, it's, it saved me to a degree. Uh, and it set the stage for what I then ended up doing, which is just the same thing, but just amped up and ramped up and, and then more, more regularly, just the insane frequency with which you have to produce when you're doing a YouTube channel, especially one where you're chasing new stories. And like, it's every day you have to come up with a new right. story. You have to come up with a new script. You have to come up with a new piece of content. Here's a new protocol that you have to learn in an hour and then present a video on as if you know exactly what it's talking about. And like some of the stuff in DeFi, it's pretty, it's pretty high level stuff. So, so let me ask you, have you developed sort of like a, a, a lean process in being able to understand a topic, build a storyboard and churn out content recorded, edited, and published is there is there a certain system you've built for yourself so at the defiant we did have that yes because it was the only way we we could survive and just to break it down like on a monday i would have to come in and write the story of the weekend called a quick take knock it out uh i would have to write that present it and then it would get given to the editor and he would edit it up on a tuesday we'd have a tutorial so i would try and do the tutorial on the monday as well so then i'd sit down go through something that I thought was interesting and then try and figure out how to do a tutorial on it. It might have been a presentation that I'd have to do. Then on the Wednesday, we would have first look. So we take something new, something interesting, break it down and, and try and understand why it was interesting. We turned that into spicy ones. So we'd look for something that was particularly spicy in the market. And then I would do that review while eating hot sauce. That was interesting. And then on a Thursday, we'd have a live show. So we'd have to put the guests for the live show uh, who would come on and then I would have to prep to interview them. We also did a show for Real Vision where we'd take topics and break them down with the team at Real Vision, whether it's Ash Bennington or Raul Pal. And then on Friday, we do what we call Define Weekly, which was a longer film, a longer story, 
So maybe I was breaking down the Cardano ecosystem or I was taking a look at specific types of hacks that have been going on, something like that. And with that one, we'd have, we'd shoot like a minute and a half of a cold open, which is basically just a disconnected piece of creative content that would just lead in. And that was a chance for us to flex some creative muscles. And that was always something that we try and come up with early in the week, but it would always end up be like Thursday afternoon and I would have to write it. And then the scripts themselves, a defined weekly script is usually about 10 pages. Um, so that process was just right, 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 right. You have to kill the analysis paralysis. You have to be able to sit down and start writing. And then this is the thing that I think will shock people. I never edited my scripts. Really? Not once. Like if it was How? the long script for the Defiant Weekly and then there needed to be quotes and things going in, I would do that and I would write the Mason synchronously. So I'd have like a chunk here that I wanted to write, but like anything else, I didn't rewrite it. And like the tutorials, the first looks, they were literally recorded as they came out. No redos. That was it. That was our lean process. I just got really good at reading off and off to queue, writing a script and being able to present a topic without stuttering and without, wow. without Impressive. losing it. Impressive. And that, that's the lean process. And the, the rest of it in terms of the writing is just my tone of voice and the way I do things, I think comes out quite analytically. So I'll start a sentence when I'm talking and I kind of go, okay, this is what I want to get to. This is where I'm going next. And this is how I make it round off to a conclusion. It's just in my head now. So that's it. That was the lean process. And then for the rest of it, just knowing that basically when you get stuff into the edit, you need to shorten the time between it hitting the editor's plate and the time they can publish. So that's why we scripted everything. If we need, if, you know, if we were doing a scripted mm. piece, we'd script it. So, you know, you see YouTubers who do lots of jump cuts because they just get on, they talk and then they cut out the bits of the boring and then you just get this all the time. Like I'm splitting right. up sentences and it's just like, right. it's unwatchable for me. So I scripted it and then the editor can look at a script and you've put the links to all the B roll in the script and they can just literally piece it together from that script. And even mm. when they start editing, you can still be piecing together new bits of B roll, dropping it in and all the links are there and they just have a blueprint for the edit. And then it's like pretty quick to put it together. Solid. That's, that's, that's how we did it. Yeah. So fast forward a bit, Robin, you leave the defiant, you start based AF media. Congrats. Thank you. It's big time. I am it's now a time. founder. I'm now a founder. You are yes. now a founder. How does that feel like? I uh, no, it feels good. It feels like the natural point to get to. Um, I think all of the things that I've been learning to do and I've been working on over the last three years from Harmony, but even from the vacuum cleaner commercials, to be honest, uh, there is a reason I'll, I'll come back to that, but it was all <laughs> leading up to this point. I, I, I always wanted to have my own version of a web three property. And I got, and I just been able to meet so many interesting and amazing people along the way that it would have been a shame if I hadn't gone this route as, as hard as it is, cause it, it is hard. Um, it's been kind of gratifying to see how good the conversations were with the first round of investors, the people we talked to initially to get going with this, um, to see where we could go with that. And that that's been really good. And now all the crazy ideas I have, all the crazy things that I want to do, I'm allowed to say yes to them. And I have a team mm. around me that gets a little scared, but they say yes to them too, because they will want to try, you know, doing interesting and weird things. And then like, you know, that comes with its own challenges, obviously. 
What's up guys, sorry for the quick pause, but I wanted to tell you about Bello, a new blockchain analytics tool I built that helps Web3 native creators and communities learn more about their collectors and their on-chain behavior. Through a simple search, Bello's intelligence can help you figure out a price for your NFT drop, show you what other communities your collectors are a part of, and empower you with insights to make confident decisions on how to grow your community. I built Bello with you in mind. So as a creator myself, Bello has helped me make money by finding sponsors for the podcast and allowed me to curate better content for you guys. And now it's ready to help other creators too. If you're a Web3 native creator, NFT project founder, or community manager, join the waitlist to try Bello's beta product today by signing up at bello.lol forward slash join. That's B-E-L-L-O dot L-O-L forward slash join. All right, back to the episode. Is there is there an example of something you wanted to do while working at Harmony or The Defiant that you couldn't do that you can now do now? Yes, there is a very good example of that. So I, I recognized that the metaverse was going to be a thing, like a really big thing and a really juicy topic, summer of 2021. And coincidentally at the time, because it was during the pandemic, there was more of a focus on VTubers and on indie mocap, motion capture. So I was following a a guy called uh, Matt Workman who was building a motion capture studio in his basement, basically. Uh, but he wasn't building it using a suit. He was building it using multiple cameras arranged around his room. And at the same time, we were seeing all the stuff coming out of the Mandalorian. So Unreal Engine being used in like full Hollywood productions as digital backdrops, as, as a digital studio in a sense. And all that stuff was fascinating because one of the challenges I had here was that I always shoot in the same room. And it's very difficult. The moment we leave the office and go and shoot externally, we lose half a day. It's just the nature of the beast. Even if you just step outside for a bit, you lose so much time in the process of packing up a camera, going outside, going to a location, even if it's nearby, it just wastes a ton of time. And under the schedule that we were on, we couldn't do that. So I was always looking for ways to add more value into the studio that we had. Unreal Engine was clearly a tool that was going to be a major component in production in the future. It's a way of transporting you to different places. It's a way of saving money. It's a way of, you know, having a smaller environmental footprint when you're producing and it's photorealistic and it's all these incredible things. Uh, what we also saw was these PFP characters that had these 3d assets attached as well. I was like, we can connect these two things. We can tell stories about the metaverse from within a platform that feels like the metaverse. And so that's what I wanted to do. And we went quite a long way in exploring how we would do that and building digital sets, trying to film in unreal. And every time we did it, we would just hit this massive wall. It's just on the one hand, unreal engine is incredible because it allows you to bring in all of these incredible photorealistic assets from the Megascans library. And the Megascans library is this huge, ever-growing, photo-scanned library of anything you want, really. And they keep adding new things to it, but like it could be a Coke can, it could be a rock, it could be a tree, it could be a desert. It's all there. It's all free. It's part of Unreal Engine. You can use Unreal Engine for free. It's this incredible thing. And it's very, very easy to assemble a scene and add environmental things to it mm. and, and get built up. But once you start getting into the world of having a character and having a skeleton and retargeting motion capture data onto that character and having that character function in the way that you want it to, 
exponentially, the world gets a lot, lot harder. So you can't just pick it up and use it, not the way we wanted to. And so what I, what I wanted to do was build this digital backdrop, build a motion capture studio and be able to tell stories in a metaverse-like environment with the same rapidity and the same ease as we did all the live action stuff. Mm. I have now built that studio because that's okay. what I want to do. But what it's turned out to be is it needed a significantly larger investment in order to make that happen. One that the define wasn't in any hurry or any need to make. So it was always going to be on me to find that. So that, that's been the biggest thing. And if you're looking for a USP for what based AF will be about, it'll be that. Yeah. Um, sure. The live action stuff, we're really good at it. Like, I, I think I can present pretty well. I can make a good kind of funny video of me tripping over my ass or running a, a marathon in the metaverse and all these kind of things. And that will always be important because, you know, people still need to see real people and real things going on. But the work we're doing to hook up game engines, Web3 native properties, motion capture, and live streaming all together plus some form of chat GPT powered environment modeling at the same time, there isn't anybody else doing that right now. Certainly not in the way that we're planning on doing it. And we're only ever going to be able to get good at it by doing it badly every day for the next year until the point at which we go, now we've got it. Because that's, that's, it's so difficult and it's so idiotic to do that, that, nobody will try because it's too difficult and there's no, there's no way of monetizing it unless you're doing what we're doing. But as a course, over the course of doing that, we'll end up, I think coming up with a, a brand of entertainment and a way of making shows that is completely original and completely new. And that's what I'm excited about. It's, it's taking models of entertainment and using the metaverse as a canvas to explore what those can be and how they can be. And that, that for me is really exciting. As, as much as I love the live action shooting beautiful videos, it's not exactly something we can sure. claim ownership of, even though in, in the Web3 space, most video production is terrible. Um, that con complete kind of reimagining of how we make stories and how we make particularly live stuff, plugging in music, everything else, that's what gets me up in the morning. So your vision of this, this new world of entertainment, when an end user encounters it, what is your goal with making them feel? So I want them to feel that they, they're experiencing something they've never experienced before and that they can be part of that. One of the, one of the key things about the metaverse is it's about social presence. It's about being able to share something with somebody else. And you only have to go back to the testimonials of people who were at the Fort like Travis Scott concert. And even that, even though it wasn't actually thousands of people in the same instance of the game at the same time, it was quite kind of guarded, all of that they still felt like they were part of something very special. And that has always stuck with me, how we create that experience meaningfully and repeatably. So I want people to feel like they're in it with other people. We're already experimenting with VR and particularly VR chat and how to create experiences in there. But it's that sense of togetherness, like you're with your mates at a rave, that kind of thing, except they could be anywhere in the world and they could be a tomato, a cucumber, or you know, a monkey, whatever. That is the thing, but the world that you're in is alive and responsive to you as much as you are to each other. That, that should be really, really entertaining. Uh, I, I, again, I don't really know how it's going to play out because I, I don't, but what we've been given is the opportunity to experiment and figure it out. Um, so, so, I, so this, this, 
the, yeah. this concept really quick and not, not to cut you off, but you kept emphasizing that you want it to, to, you want it to feel like people are part of something, right? And the best way to integrate that is through NFTs, right? Have them collect something, have some upside and some incentive to be a part of the community, have a, have a tool to vote on things, depending on what your goal is, right? Is that where I'm getting at? Or are you envisioning an, another form of, uh, of integration? No, you're absolutely right. We have a community called the Based Heads. We have a 10K collection, which we dropped at the beginning of January. And that represents our super fans. It's our core audience. The reason we did it that way is we didn't have to. We could have just built this thing without. Is NFTs are a really fun way of bootstrapping a community. And like you say, making a community feel like they have ownership of something. What that is, I don't think anybody really knows because we're co-creating it. We are the creators. And like I think we're amongst the best content creators in Web3. And so we, rightfully, we should lead the way. And when we have products like Fraz Cola, which we make the commercials for, or Fraz Primal, which we make the commercials for, these are real products that we make really fun, nice, fake ads for. And these are what we call anti-brands. They're not brands, they're anti-brands. Mm. But they, they are things that we're going to be able to give to our community to have ownership of as well. And I'll, I'll get into more of that in a second. But the the idea of having these NFTs, they... they they're an amazing distribution mechanism as well because they let you know where your audience is and they allow you to give them something very quickly and pain painlessly. And we were looking at things like live streaming and having live minting during a stream and understanding the shape of your audience in terms of their wallets, which is a data point that's never been available before, but a really interesting one. And when people look at our collection, they see the blue chip holders index it's really high, even though distribution is relatively low and the floor price is where it's at, they can see that the quality of the actual owner is very high, relatively speaking, in the space. And that's pretty meaningful. So you can do the similar kind of thing with your analytics on stream. And one of the things that I'm really keen to explore and keen to try and build is what I call the third pillar of the creator economy. So the creator economy is like, it's this weaponized clout machine where it's build an audience and monetize the fuck out of that audience by doing x x and x and those three things are you know you watch a million youtube videos like you should be doing this you should be doing this you should be doing this and it's all about retention hacks and retention tactics and keeping your audience and trade you know treating the algorithm like your bitch and all this stuff and none of that sounds like creativity to me it all sounds like extracting the maximum revenue from each click that you possibly can so what are you going to do you're just going to engineer those clicks and i hate that shit i honestly do i understand it's a game i do uh but if i if i watch like mr beast videos i find it impossible to enjoy them anymore because i know that i'm just being treated like a toddler and he's determined to make me not look away and it makes it really really hard to to enjoy them. And it's, you know, that's just attention tactics and, you know, building an audience taken to like the maximum level. So this idea of monetizing your audience, I mean, it's fair enough. You're building a business, you're doing all these kind of things, but it becomes at such a cost and it feels unwholesome. There are like these influencers called Andre Jake and Graham Stefan. And I was in the similar space doing DeFi. And I, you know, I used to see them talk about Bitcoin spouting out utter rubbish about this space and what it was about. And I used to call them out on it, but like these guys have built massive audiences. Their CPM, their cost per milli to um, advertise on them is massive because they, you know, they're, they're influencers. So a credit card company will pay a lot for an advert on their channel to reach their audience. Just like, this is, this is 
horseshit. Like, I think they, they, Graham Stephan's probably earning like seven, eight million a year, um, on AdSense and deals that he makes. She just hate it. <laughs> so my third pillar is what I call share the spoils. So I was like, yeah, build an audience, monetize that audience. That's the game. Okay. Well, what's, what can we do to share those spoils with our community? Mm. Like NFTs are not the perfect solution to that, but they open up a dialogue with your community in a way that will start to have to make that possible. And, you know, there's this concept of the full-time fan that I'm really excited about, which is if someone really loves your content and they're willing to go to bat for you, like share it, spread the word, maybe contribute ideas, then that could be considered a job. And if it's a job, then they get paid for it. Like, isn't that weird? Like Web3 goes, no, that's not weird. We can do that. And then they spit out a token and you go, but I don't want a token. I, I, I don't want a token because Gary Gensler will cut off my balls if I have a token. So what's the option? The answer is we don't know at this point. There is no regulatory clarity and that's the problem. So until we have that, we won't know how to do a sensible token model for this. So we have to figure out other ways of doing it. And one of the mm. things that we looked at before we even launched was creating a wallet that we had no control over, giving it to a DAO and all the AdSense revenue, all the click-based revenue that we've made, because that's what AdSense revenue is. And you can call it whatever you want, but it's that. It's performance-related pay. And it should be a bonus to everything else you're doing. We're just like, we'll convert that to USDC, give it to this wallet, walk away. But we can't do that. As simple as that may sound, it just ends up then being a sales pitch for a product based on the work that you do and not the work that someone else does. Um, and so we have to think of ways for our community to do work and be rewarded for it rather than them just getting a share of what we do because we run foul of securities laws, which we don't need at this point. So, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at different ways to do that. And obviously there are perks to come with it. You know, we will have content that only token holders can access. We'll have, uh, exclusive drops. Like when we do Fraz, there'll be a drop for that, a physical drop as well as a digital drop. And, um, there'll be benefits to token holders. But one of the things we actually are doing and trying to integrate as much as possible is having token holders be part of the show. Um, because in the metaverse, you want them to show up. And what we want is for our base heads to be a mob that show up on mass in areas that we designate and say, right, base heads are here. Now it's a party. So we're training them in how to use VR chat and turn up and be part of it with us. Like when I ran an ultra marathon in the metaverse last weekend, <laughs> there were like six people that ran with me. And I say ran, but they were just pushing forward on their joysticks for six hours, more, seven, eight. One of them ran me for the whole time. She, she literally couldn't move her thumb the next day. I was like, that is <laughs> wild. But that's, you know, that, that made it all worthwhile because we proved the point. We didn't just put on an event. I didn't just run in a digital game. It was the actual act of being socially present with other people while suffering my ass off. Um, that was really meaningful. So I think for, for me, having the ability to bring other people in, bring community members into a game. Uh, so we do like a Mr. Beast type game where, you know, it's the first to let go of an object. Um, so the last Lego of an object wins 10 grand or something, we just will be building those in the metaverse and they'll only be accessible for holders mm. of the NFT. So the, you know, the, the core audience. Um, 
So all sorts of different I, things like that. I'm curious, this concept of the full-time fan. It's the first time I hear about this keyword, the full-time fan, and uh, it actually makes a lot of sense. I feel like there's uh, other analogies that people use in Web3 that kind of allude to this uh, this idea of, of shared ownership and, and aligned incentives. My question to you, though, is do fans want that? Because it seems as if like they're doing just fine and showing up to the Mr. B Small in packs without having any sort of rev share with them, or maybe the slight chance to win a million dollars for Mr. Beast in a rare scenario that they, that they end up on his video. Right. And he's an outlier, but this concept of the full-time fan, do fans want that? And why? I think if you offered it to them, if you said to Mr. Beast fans, you can be a full-time fan, they would jump at it because most people who say they want to be a YouTuber lack the talent or the persistence or the creativity to pull that off. Let's be honest. Um, they can do it, you know, and they can find a, a, an audience, but to get to that scale, cause that's really what they want. They want to be at that scale and be that successful. Uh, I think they'd really struggle. So having a chance to be part of a successful creator's life endeavors, be part of that. I think they would. Yeah. 100%. Mm. So it's not my job to persuade other creators that this is a meaningful right. path forward. All I can do is advocate for a more holistic version of this relationship because any creator of any size will talk about the parasocial relationship, which is your audience thinks they know you. They think they are close to you. They think they have a window into the secrets of your life because you choose to share so much with them. And that relationship is very much one-sided, but for the audience, they genuinely feel that way. I've had this thing where people come up to me and they, they, they say, this is weird, man. I'm like, I don't know you, but they feel like they know you because they've spent so much time listening to you talk about stuff. Right. And, they, and like the thing they say is you're a bit taller than I thought you were. I thought, <laughs> I thought you'd be short. I was like, yeah, you should go and see the guys at Bankless. They're very small, <laughs> but we, we run tall here. So, um, yeah. So that relationship is, it's definitely, I think it's 100% the case. Uh, but it's very difficult to, to pull it off and it's very difficult to make it work. So you, you have to run experiments. I didn't come up with this, by the way, this guy called Blake Robbins. You can check him out on Twitter, Blake IR. Uh, he's one of those guys who's just like, you know, when, you know, when people have just like, they've got it, they just, they just made it, they did it. Uh, he is, a, he's a principal at benchmark. He's an investor he's like 23 or something. It's sickening, horrifying how successful he's been. But, um, one of, one of the things he did the, I've got the wrong Blake. Um, but yeah, he's a, he's a guy that invested in hundred thieves and became obsessed with esports and just, just nailed it. Mm -hmm. And he started writing about this during the pandemic. And cause obviously everyone was writing tons of threads during the pandemic because that's all they could do. But he was specifically talking about how NFTs might be able to empower that, like social tokens might be able to empower that. Personally, I hate social tokens as a concept. I won't touch them. Don't want to go there. But there's definitely a, a mechanism by which this might be able to play out. And so all we're trying to do is work with the community that we have to try and figure that out in real time and being as blatantly honest as we can about that um, as well. So, yeah. If there's one community that comes to mind or one person that comes to mind that fits into the context of season seven's theme of creating content that's worth collecting, you're like the first person that pops up in my head. 
from the content that you created on the Defiant and all the creativity and energy that you put into actually constructing these videos, it's mad. It's it's content that's worth collecting. When you hear that phrase, what what do you think about? Because uh, I, I think we're getting into this new primitive of Web3 media with tokens enabling so much more that we actually couldn't have in, in sort of like traditional industries. So when you think of that phrase, create content worth collecting, what, what comes to your mind? I hope that's what we're doing. That's what I've been trying to to get to. Like I make compilation tapes, or at least we, we used to make compilation tapes of the Defiant of all the funny little bits that were just kind of scattered throughout the videos. Because we'd often just insert a joke for no apparent reason and spend like three hours shooting it when we only had an hour. Because we wanted them to be like memorable moments. Video is this kind of throwaway thing and like digital art has like a GIF or an ex-copy GIF has somehow more artistic value and artistic merit than the short form stuff that I've made. And I kind of always find that a bit weird. Like no one ever saw what we did in the same light. So you're actually the first person who's ever said that to me. And it's kind of, it's nice to hear it. Um, I hope that we have, we're able to make stuff that's worth collecting. We're certainly trying to build out a a type of performance art that is 360 and is weird. Like, like again, running the ultramarathon, that was a piece of performance art. Obviously, uh, it was a nine hour live stream and it was, it was mad as tits, but it was, you know, it was a thing. You're trying to create uh, an image of yourself or a legend of, of yourself that tr- transcends and that is worth collecting 100%. Um, if you told me, for instance, that I could gain access to Nick Winding Refn's notebook or his sketches for Drive, the film. I'd be all over that. Like I, I have the jacket from Drive. It's this gold scorpion driver's jacket quilted. And I wear it without shame in public. And people go, I love your jacket, man. I love, <laughs> I love that jacket. Where'd you get it? It's like, oh, well, it's actually from this film. It's from, from Drive by Nick Winding Revan. Who? Who the fuck's that man? I just like the jacket. <laughs> um, so, but anyway, that, I'm a cinephile. I, I love that shit. So, <laughs> so what I'm trying to do is become Nick Winding Refn, who's an obscure Danish right. art house director. There you go. <laughs> all right. <laughs> I'm, I'm excited for your journey. I'm excited to see all that base media has in store. Um, Robin, before I let you go and we wrap up the interview, where can we learn more about what you're working at? What should we look forward to in the coming, in the, in the coming months? Um, shill it away. So we call ourselves a metaverse content monster. That's a big promise. It demands that it we is. deliver a lot of content. So it's a three-pronged strategy, right? So we're doing live streams, long-form YouTube content, and short-form vertical. So those three prongs are basically what they call the triple threat. And the content itself will be arranged around, firstly, big stunt ideas hooked into and connected to the metaverse, but not always necessarily set in the metaverse, but think like Mr. Beast from like three years ago, because no one can compete with his scale right now, but like from three years ago, we can get there. So big cash giveaways, big kind of crazy challenges, that kind of thing. And then my own unique brand of storytelling around that, that's long form. So that'll be a really juicy, like alternative to Netflix for you. The kind of thing you should tune in using your TVs built in, YouTube app, like sit down, watch it, enjoy it. We're going to blow your mind with what we came up with. Then we'll have these vertical videos. So we're developing 
vertical formats, but we'll also do like sidebars, which would be like for running a marathon in the metaverse, how do we do it? Like, how do you run in VR? So we can do a little featurette on the, the machine itself, teach you a little bit. There are concepts in the metaverse coming up all the time. We'll do little short form videos about that. And we'll probably have some news as well, probably quite soon, because there's always stuff to talk about in the metaverse. And I think people are interested. So more regular short form. And then, like I said, formats. So one of the ones we want to do is called Metaverse Mansions. It's basically cribs. And we'll just go through Sick. and rip the shit out of people's Metaverse builds. Uh, you spent 200 grand on this, bollocks. Is anyone there? Do you use it? You're an idiot. <laughs> It'll basically be along those lines. And then um, the live streams will be... There's definitely going to be some gaming in there because like, there are some okay. big-ass games that we need to live stream and figure that <laughs> we figure that out. Um, or like, you know, the marathon event was a, a nine hour live stream. That was nuts. Um, with lots of entertainment thrown in as well. So that's the kind of triple threat, but right. it is meta metaverse themed, which is like a, it's like a niche, which is the biggest niche of all time. Cause it covers everything, which is why I love it so much. It's like, you know, everyone treats it like this tiny little subcategory, but actually it's the big category above everything. So from an advertising perspective or brand integration perspective, that's exciting. So sort of partnerships there to be had and just like make a ton of really entertaining videos basically okay all right i'm excited for you i'm rooting for you uh we're gonna have to do a check-in soon sometime uh, for sure you months, know you gotta treat but... your your class of season seven with respect yes yes absolutely in. but until then wishing you the best thank you for being on season seven and i uh, will see you next time thank you much for having me What's up, guys? Thank you for listening. If you've gotten this far, then you are a champ, and I owe you a free listener pin. Go to adamlevy.io forward slash NFT, fill in your info, and I'll distribute the NFT towards the end of the season. By collecting your pin, you prove your contribution to the season and get exclusive access to content, allow lists, and more. So be sure to collect yours. Also, please make sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening. This helps me out so much. And finally, hit me up on Twitter at LevyChain. I want to hear what you're building, the latest crowdfund you're trying to complete, or if you simply want to chat. I love talking about where crypto meets the creator economy, and it's no different if it's coming from you directly. So thanks again for your support. It means the world, and I'll see you on the next episode.